there's what trails cost and then there's the cost sort of benefit of those trails like yeah it it in terms of it actually created this experience we were after or it solved this puzzle or it you know enabled a new loop or connection like it's be looking past the cost to also thinking about going back to the idea of like we really have to view Welcome to Trail Effect. I am your host, Josh Blum. Trail Effect is a show that dives into the stories behind trails, the communities that embrace trails, and the people who rely on trails as a way of life. The goal of this show is to turn the stories you will hear from our guests into useful knowledge that can be applied to your community while providing some entertaining and inspirational content. Guests on Trail Effect include trail builders, board members, community leaders, volunteers, and regular people who really enjoy trails. If you've been a longtime listener to the Trail Effect podcast, it should come as no surprise that we are once again featuring a guest from Vermont, as Vermont is definitely one of the most mountain biking estates in the U.S. Former Vermont guests include Lil Ide, Abby Long, C.J. Scott, Katrin Maloney, Mariah Kegi, and now Nick Bennett. Nick is the executive director for the Vermont Mountain Bike Association, a.k.a. Vimba. Nick brings a unique perspective to his role at Vimba as he moved to Vermont from the Pacific Northwest, but he took his time living the van life with his family and mountain biking around the nation before settling in Vermont. Cooley Creative is the title sponsor for this episode. They design and build custom websites as well as help companies with branding, photography, and e-commerce. Cooley Creative was started in Wisconsin, but is now based out of Bend, Oregon. Jared from Cooley Creative is a friend of mine. We've traveled together on multiple mountain bike trips, and sometimes he sends it. For more information about Cooley Creative, head on over to www.dojustsendit.com. Yes, that's right, www.dojustsendit.com We'll get you to the Cooley Creative website, so check it out. Once again, I was fortunate to escape the frozen tundra of Wisconsin and head back to the land of Oz trails. I was able to use the Kettle Mountain Canyon bibs a couple more times. Every time I've used the Canyon bibs, they continue to amaze me. The chamois is great, and my favorite feature is the three back pockets so more food and supplies can be carried under your jersey. The Canyon bib also has over 200 five-star reviews. Surely 200 plus mountain bikers can't be wrong. Check out the Canyon bib, and support the Trail Effect podcast over at Kettle Mountain Apparel by going to www.ketlmtn.com backslash Josh, or you can hit the link in the show notes. I'd like to take a moment to thank all of the listeners and guests who have taken the time to share the Trail Effect episodes on their social media accounts such as Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn, along with taking Trail Effect in their posts. This has helped a lot more listeners find the Trail Effect podcast. Please keep up all the sharing, commenting, and tagging of Trail Effect. I'd also like to thank all of the listeners who have signed up to be supporters of Trail Effect through Patreon. These actions mean a lot to me. Now on to the Trail Effect with Nick Bennett. And rough. Here we are today on Trail Effect. I have Nick Bennett. He's the executive director of the VMBA, otherwise known as the Vermont Mountain Bike Association. How's it going today, Nick? It's going great. Thanks for having me on. Oh, of course. You have like your your mountain bike association, as pointed out in our email communication, is probably the most successful mountain bike association or statewide association limited to one state, especially in, in the country, which is pretty unique. I think your state, I was doing the math, your state is, if, if Wikipedia is right. <laughs> which it often is, at least. Yeah. Yeah. It has like 250, or I'm sorry, 650,000 residents. And if you've got, you know, 25 or 9,500, or more members, that's almost 1.5% 1, 1. of the state, Yeah, is a member of the VMBA. And I'm sure there's 
you might have some membership that is outside of the state and you might have, and you probably have member or mountain bikers that aren't members of that. So that's huge. Yeah, no, it's huge. I mean, it's amazing here and that's grown kind of dramatically over the last even five to 10 years, but it's at a place now where, as you mentioned, when we can count the equivalent of one and a half percent of the population is card carrying Vimba members. I mean, people listen when we have things to say, we're currently chairing, we run the Vermont Trails and Greenways Council here in Vermont, which is sort of the collection of all the trail organizations. And I think people are looking to the mountain bike community as a leader and as a leading voice there. And it's great. I mean, I spend my time talking with legislators, policymakers, and I think the amount of respect when you have that um, that amount of buy-in from the population. And it's part of what makes, we'll get into it, I think, but part of what makes riding in Vermont so special is because so much of the community is is taking part in it. Let's kind of hear your backstory and especially what brought you into becoming the executive director for the VMBA. Yeah. And it's a pretty circuitous path. It's not a through line. I think probably everyone you talk to, very few people are like, when I was seven, I decided I wanted to run a mountain bike association. But I think like so many folks, mine started in a in the basement of a bike shop back when I was a teenager. I grew up in St. Louis, Missouri. Um, I worked for a couple of guys that now run The Hub, which is a shop, uh, a shop that's there. And it was sort of how I got, you know, the trial by fire of how you sort of get into the bike industry. I was a kid that rode a BMX bike, Got into these shop guys brought me in. I could I was halfway decent turning a wrench and they got me into mountain biking. I started to, you know, I kind of dove in all in in high school. That's what I did on my weekends. And I my crew, that was our that was kind of our our passion. And then when I went to college, I I I kind of dabbled in mountain bike racing and kind of eventually went the got hooked on skinny tires and got more involved in road racing, went deep down that path, you know, became cap one, went around the country, did got really sort of love the there's analogies to sort of road racing and mountain bike, just trail riding in terms of the adrenaline and sort of the camaraderie and stuff. So it was it kind of went deep there and ended up actually ended up in grad school. So made it through college, ended up in grad school for for chemistry of all things and picked up a, a PhD in chemistry, which, again, we're getting pretty far off from like what was the through line to to trails here. But but there, the connection for me was sustainability and environmental. My focus in chemistry was biofuels and I was really kind of deep into how can we sort of address the environmental crisis that's going on in the, in the world? And out of grad school, I ended up working for a um, management consulting firm that was picking up PhDs. It was, I viewed it as like, I, well, I was kind of keen to figure out solutions that the business community could adopt that were environmentally focused and realized I didn't know anything about business and figured the best way to learn was kind of by doing. And uh, one of these, one of the big management consulting firms recruits PhDs. So I went and worked for them for a couple of years. They brought me to Seattle. And that actually was fortuitous because Seattle is kind of where I fell back in love with mountain biking. My wife and I moved there in 2011. Shortly thereafter, had a kiddo and and I started to spend my time, you know, got back on my, at that point it was still hardtails, 26 inch hardtail for 2011, which is pretty dated even at that point. But you know, tons of time at Tiger Mountain, at a Tokol, um, the exit 27, and just I I realized like this was my the passion. It's just what I was doing my sort of out of work, out of work hours in, and and it brought me back into the the mountain bike sort of cohort. And during that time too, I kind of I had transitioned professionally. I was working for a boutique consulting firm that only worked with mission driven organizations and nonprofits. So my working hours were really advising, sometimes small, sometimes big, but companies that that were mission focused, did advocacy or supported nonprofits. And so professionally, I was really kind of getting into to that game. At the same time, I was volunteering for Evergreen, doing, you know, your basic volunteer trail work. But I I was trying to kind of reconcile on my side, like, how do I take the skill set that I've developed professionally and apply that to trails? Because like, 
I'm okay at, you know, with a Matic or a shovel or whatever, but that's not my, uh, that's not where I'm trained and that's not my area of expertise. And so to, you know, fast forward to 2020 pandemic hit, we lived in the city of, you know, almost downtown. We felt the walls closing in, had a seven-year-old at the time and decided just sell the house. He said, we're, we, we needed to make the best lemonade we could out of the, out of the lemons. We had a camper van. We just hit the road and lived on the road for five months and took it as an opportunity to just get my son out in the woods. We, we were both, we took sabbaticals from our job and just sort of like said, we would be part-time second grade teachers and spend the rest of our time kind of on the trail and at trailheads and had an amazing opportunity to tour much of the West and kind of made our way South following the sun. It was, it was fantastic. But during that time, buddy of mine, um, who also volunteered at Evergreen from the, you know, back in Seattle, he reached out and he's like, Hey, I heard Vimba's looking for a new director. And, and actually we had planned to come back to Vermont. My wife's family lived here and, and with the pandemic, we knew that Vermont had schools open that spring. And so we were already, you know, our big roadmap had already kind of arced us back to Vermont. And so kind of started to learn more. And, and I, the last time I had ridden here in, in Vermont was before we moved it was 2011. And back then it was hard to find, you know, you, if you asked somebody where the trails were, they would say in the woods, you know, it was not, <laughs> it, was, it was hard to figure out. There was still some pretty good trail here, but it was not anything like it is today. So anyway, I, I was interested. I looked at the, you know, the more I learned about the organization, talked to the board, stuff like that, I realized like, it just struck me that this was a chance to take that professional skills that I had, I had put together over time um, and apply it to something I loved and um, kind of the rest is history. So I got a couple places we're going to go on that, but I have to I ask this to everybody I know that's ever lived in St. Louis. I don't think okay. I've ever asked it on the podcast <laughs> though, because the only person that knows. Oh, I know the question already. Do you know Steve Friedman? Oh, the name is ringing a bell, but I'm... that guy knows every, like anybody I've ever met out and he I thought you guys knew where I went to high school. That's like no, the St. Louis question. No, but no, yeah, no, okay. no. Steve Friedman, he lives part-time in Bentonville and part-time most of the time in St. Louis. And this guy, I swear, like I ran into people in Copper Harbor, Michigan, and they say they're from the like yeah. St. Louis. I'm like, hey, do you know Steve Friedman? And they're like, yeah, he knows everybody. <laughs> but that's the, I mean, that's the community too, right? Of like, and Vermont's even more wild. That, you know, like you mentioned 650,000 people, like forget seven or six degrees of separation. It's like two every, you know, it's, it's hard not to know somebody, particularly when you get in the, into, you know, trail riding. Well, in, in Missouri, especially is like taking cues from Arkansas, like on a daily basis. And that, that state is blowing up. It's one of my most yeah. successful shows has been with a guy from St. Louis and what he's doing in the state of Missouri in terms of, of mountain bike trails. And it's pretty, pretty incredible. Yeah. His name is Dave, AKA Coolio Schultz. And mm, yeah. you know, he was behind Shepherd Mountain. He can't, yeah. he's like, he kind of works in the background of everything, but he had a lot yeah. of government background. So he kind of knew how to get things done, you know, from, yep. you know, who to talk to and where to go. And that's been pr- proven super successful for that state. But talk about Washington. Like what a state to, to kind of get back into mountain biking in and re- realize what the potential is to bring to a state like Vermont, because Washington is a super high functioning state when it comes to advocacy and mountain biking in the evergreen and just everything yeah. they have going and their DNR is super good too. They hire trail builders. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean that that's, there was no better place to kind of learn and, and just observe in terms of just a super high functioning, as you mentioned, advocacy organization. I mean, their structure is a lot different because they have, it's a much more monolithic land manager. You've got DNR and they're fantastic in terms of my observations in terms of how they collaborate with Evergreen and really they view it as part of their mission to expand recreational access. They're actually 
similar in a lot of ways to here in Vermont, the Forest Service takes kind of a similar attitude that they view part of their obligation as a public landowner is to is to how do we make it easier for folks to get in the woods than, and work closely with us on those things. But yeah, I mean, I, I think part of the Pacific Northwest, I think, in terms of the skill and art of trail building, there's so much amazing stuff going on there. I think even things like you know, when I started riding, Tiger Mountain was kind of right at the transition where there was some great downhill trails there, um, kind of enigmatic of that area. But it was just when they put in the first really dedicated climbing trail. So Master Link was relatively new. And before it was a pretty terrible just schlep up a bunch of fire roads. And if you think about it, you're going to go ride a you know, network like that that has a pretty significant amount of elevation. You're going to spend 75, 80 percent of your time climbing. And so you go out there and your experience was characterized by like slogging on a climbing road and then 20% of your time on some ripping descents. And when they built this flowing, like it's one of those uphill climbing trails and people that have ridden will know, like you almost feel like you're going downhill when you're going uphill. Like there's enough between the grade reversals and just how the terrain it hits and stuff. It, it was game changing for that place. Like it made every experience you went there, like 90% of the experience was great, not 20. And I think, so those type of things, like, Realizing the thought, and I think the biggest thing, whether it be Tiger or a place like Darrington, North Mountain, or, or you know, throughout the state, like taking a much more experiential sort of perspective on trail networks, where it wasn't just like, how do we create a new mile trail that's rad? It was more about like, how do we think about the overall ways people are going to ride this network, the loops, the different types of users? And I think Evergreen being really just progressive in how they did advocacy and worked with the people, the state, I mean, I think we're still learning, I think what they do with volunteerism, with education side of things, like they've, they've, I think hit all the right notes in terms of how do we elevate the sport to where a community embraces it as something that's good for everybody. So it's just a, it's a really neat place to be. And I'm, and I miss it. Like there are things I love about um, the Pacific Northwest and um, it's, it's a place that I'll always definitely be incredibly fond of. Well, and how about a place like Duthie Hill? Yeah. Super progressive, That's right in, super right in cool. town. Well, I mean, it's just a quiet, it's, it's right in town. And kind that, of in that's town. part of the it's reason. Close. It's close, but that's, I mean, that's, and honestly, that's part of the reason that, and I think we'll touch on it for Vermont, that we, it got to a point for us, like, cause we lived in downtown Seattle and any, or virtually, and anytime we wanted to get out to ride, when we moved there in 2011, it was 30 minute drive, you know, no big deal, even on the afternoons or whatever. And by the time we left in 2020, it was, it could be an hour and a half drive. Like you wouldn't, there were so many more people coming. It just felt so much more challenging to get to those places. So, I mean, and, and you're right. And Duty Hill is an amazing, I mean, that's where definitely I learned to certainly dirt jump. Like that's, it's just the amount of progression, how those network, like they're different. It's another example of kind of network with a purpose. Like that's a stack loop system in terms of you look at it and it's clover leafed and it's got, it, it's a lot of trail on a pretty small amount of parcel, but every trail is so thoughtful and deliberate and steps up in terms of once you're riding, you know, the, the sort of one sort of network, you start at boot camp or what have you, and then you're starting to go through what it's like all the way up to flying squirrel or some of these other, like, you know, you, you can really take that step by step and feel like it's, it serves its purpose. Like you're not going there to get a backcountry experience, but you're going there to get laps and build a skill and, and have a ton of fun and just, um, yeah, that's a, that's the kind of the it's a that's a neat place and a place that you can learn a lot of how to build a spot that really brings people together. Transitioning back to the VMBA, you know, you obviously we've pointed or you've pointed out that you're new to the organization and and semi new to the community. Let's get your take on the history of the VMBA and kind of what led it to this point as you know it, which is different than say you know your predecessor. 
Yeah, no, it's a great question. I mean, and we had a chance to really reflect on this last year. So last year was our 25th anniversary. We did like a big video where it actually was cool. We, we filmed it at my house. We had the four sort of effectively executive directors over the past 25 years come and film. And we did a little video session talking about their time um, trying to shepherd the organization. And really, you know, it formed as in the beginning, we had this challenge just purely around limited landowner liability. And, and part of that's related to the fact that in Vermont, 70% of public access trails are on private land, which is way different than a lot of other places. And it's similar to the uh, upper Midwest, but but there's a lot of spots in the country where it's all public land. So there was this kind of crisis where landowners were really concerned that someone was going to hurt themselves on their property and sue them. So BIMBA formed as a way to really advocate for better legislation that protected landowners. And from that, we have some of the best legislation in the country that that makes it very clear and clean cut that a landowner is never responsible for for that kind of injury or lawsuit. So that's kind of where it's, it started. And at the same time, you had throughout Vermont sort of community mountain bike groups popping up um, throughout the state, whether it be Stowe or in the Mad River or elsewhere. And, but they were little islands and not super connected. And then sort of the mid 2005, 2006 was when the public land managers became really aware of mountain biking because mountain bike at that point was just kind of emerging out of the woodwork. It was still pretty fringe fringe sport and realized that people were riding on public lands, whether they were allowed to or not, they were building on public lands, whether they were allowed to or not. And they needed to approach the entire, you know, what was going on with a little bit more structure and with a partner. And that's where Vimba really morphed. And at that point it was under um, Patrick Kell, who now, who now works for Imba, but he's a fantastic dude. He worked closely with, with help, both sort of crafting an agreement with Forest Parks and Rec here at the state level. And then also really importantly, the Forest Service and realizing Forest Service said, and it's a neat story. Their um, recreation manager, Holly Knox, who's a fantastic advocate for, for outdoor recreation here in Vermont, she had seen what mountain bike building was at that point. Imba Trail sort of crews at the time had come here and sort of showed the techniques and practices and was blown away. It was like mountain bike trail building is an order of magnitude more sophisticated than hiking trails or and just in terms of environmental sustainability planning. And they were just like, we want to work with you to figure out how we can expand sustainable recreation access. So that kind of, you know, the, the organization kind of morphed to like, okay, how are we engaging with these like state and federal land managers still working with chat these at that point, they were just independent groups. And then there was not that long after kind of realizing as mountain biking continued to grow, like we needed to come together and coming together, sort of those organizations became chapters of this thing that was the Vermont Mountain Bike Association. We were born as VMBA, but it was Vermont Mountain Bike Advocates. And then this transition to Vermont Mountain Bike Association, where we created a chapter model and said, we're going to have retain the individual identities of these, these chapters that will really drive trail design and planning and community engagement. But we need to have a collective voice. We need to have you know alignment on sort of where we're headed, certainly how we work with the bigger landowners. And that was 10 years ago or so or now. And, and one of the other really important things that that opened the door for is when people become members of VIMBA, they designate a primary chapter. For me, it might be the Waterbury, WADA, the Waterbury Trail Alliance, but they can add on these additional chapters. Yeah, do you ride in Stowe? Do you ride in the Mad River? Do you ride down Southern Vermont? Do you ride in Woodstock? And that sort of shared membership model just took off. And really those add-on chapters, it allowed folks to sort of spread their support throughout the state more. And I think that in in sort of facilitated a lot more buy-in from these these individual chapters. And over time, I think everyone realizing that the model was one in which the organization, like this office, you know, that that I run takes on the sort of operational backbone, advocacy, education, the statewide stuff. 
but our focus is really enabling and empowering community-driven stewardship through the chapter. So it's a very symbiotic relationship that took years to kind of form and, and everyone to feel like worked really well. But that, I think, once that really started clicking and, and the last couple of years have been really focused on on growing that, that's where people saw the fruits of those labors and and the membership, as you noted, started to, to take off and we're over a thousand miles of trail now um, here in a state that's the second smallest state in the country. So, you know, it's it's a spot. And, and I think that's also kind of what distinguishes it from Washington as well, in my mind, where you've got wherever you live in Vermont, I mean, it's not true for every community, but there's so many communities where you can ride to a trail or a network. And, you know, there's so many, we have 50 at least individual kind of distinct networks um, in a state that you know, there's, there are national parks bigger than Vermont. So it's crazy to think about 50 different trail networks that you can ride. And I think it's just become embedded in people's, uh, in so much of the population terms just how they live their lives and get outside. It's, it's a cool thing. You know, mountain biking gets thrown around in the, in the tourism circles quite a bit. And I've said for years, well, well before this podcast ever started, that really it's about the quality of life and, and creating a community for the people that live in that community as being kind of that sweet spot. And being able to ride to ride is so important. And that was something that came up in the last interview that I just did with Mariah Kigi, you know, from Sinuosity, Sinuosity Flowing Trails. And it's something that comes up in almost every interview because it is important. I mean, how awesome is it to be able to have your garages or trailhead? Yeah. Totally. I mean, that's, and that's kind of how, when we were thinking about where to live, we were orienting our lives around, like, I don't want to have to get in a car to ride a good trail. That was kind of just like the default <laughs> kind of the requirement. And the fact that that's true for so many Vermonters is, is what makes it really special. And I think it also makes, I think it's going to become increasingly important as we think about kind of what's facing mountain biking as it grows as a sport and becomes much more, I don't want to say mainstream, but it's not a fringe sport anymore. It has a place in the culture. Um, and it has a, is a foothold is a really important economic driver kind of anywhere is, is the more community engagement you have and the more people that benefit from. And as you mentioned, like, yeah, we've got members that aren't mountain bikers, but they see the value of the organization in being able to, to promote health, to promote economic, to promote environmental sustainability. And so like when you get, when you're able to connect to so many people, and I think for me, you know, we're having conversations now too, for example, there's an organization in Vermont called Local Motion that really focuses on bike ped infrastructure. And we're talking with them about how can we really work together to make it that much easier to ride and safer, really importantly for kids to not have to get in a car to lower the carbon footprint for getting to a trail. Like the more thing that just creates so much stability if trail networks are like, no, it, it's the community that can use this. And it's not purely people coming in front. And we have tons of people that come to Vermont. We're six hours from 60 million people. Like lots of people come here to to ride bikes, but it's at the end of the day, the communities benefit not just from the economic impact, but from the trails themselves, which I think is, is super special. Yeah. And, you know, say you are traveling to mountain bike. Like I know when I travel to mountain bike, if I'm going to, if I'm going to rent an Airbnb, I'm looking at trail forks to see where that Airbnb sure. is located because I want to get to that community, park my car and ride to ride. I don't want to have to load up and drive 30 minutes to whatever yeah. state park or whatever it is. Right. Yeah, totally. No, I mean, and you know, I have places like I, we've and we've spent a lot of time going to places. Moab's a great example. Like I love riding there, but a lot, you know, a lot of the times we've done that, it's like you're doing a lot of you're a lot of driving to ride in terms of these these places, which are amazing. But you know, you kind of at the end of the day, you're like you, you realize how valuable it is to just yeah, open the garage door, pop on your bike, and and pedal out like that. And I and honestly, from the standpoint of like a parent and somebody who's you know always looking for like, there's nothing more valuable in your life or my life than time and 
tacking on an extra half an hour, both sides of a, a ride, like that sometimes means no ride if, you know, and it's so I think that that ability to really fit it in your, that's what people here, so many people here in Vermont do is they fit it into your lifestyle. I mean, even in the wintertime, you know, we live on the sort of the bottom of the mountains here up, up towards Mount Mansfield. And like, you can get out either on a skin or, or even to the, to the lifts and get in two or three runs and be able to make a nine 30 or 10 o'clock phone call or meeting, like being able to fit that in your lifestyle versus like completely compartmentalize it into weekends or, or trips, I think is, is, a, is for me, at least it's important. Yeah. And it'll help grow the sport too, because, or the activity, I don't want to call it a sport anymore. It's an activity because most people don't go to say Moab to learn how to mountain bike. They learn wherever they live, yeah. hopefully, you know, and with that access to do that, then that just grows the activity. Yeah, totally. Let's go into your five-year strategic plan. Cause it sounds like that came about, uh, not too long after this video or maybe during this video was shot last year mm-hmm. and what prompted yeah. this plan. And maybe like, I guess on a personal level, did you have any preconceived ideas of what was going to come out of the planning process and maybe how those ideas had shifted when other things maybe emerged? Yeah, those are really good questions. I mean, I think, so we, we filmed that video last summer, but honestly, the strategic plan was in the works long before that. And I think, you know, the, the, if in terms of what prompted it, we've touched on a lot of this, like the growth in the sport or activity or lifestyle or cultural foothold, whatever you want to call it now, like the growth has been so phenomenal over the last 10 years, honestly, that, you know, the acknowledging that membership, the trail mileage, like realizing that we're in a very different spot than we were 10 or 20 years ago, just in terms of when, you know, our old motto is just more trail, better trail. It was literally like find access, secure access, add trails, just needing places to ride. And that's not wrong. That's not a bad slogan, but like, and we need more trail. We need better trail, but like revising the target, you know, we've sort of summited that first hill or like you know that salt that first summit and it's kind of like we need to take our breath and figure out like where are we going from here and how are we going to get there because if you know it, it, we're in a different spot and just knowing that we have different capabilities now knowing we have more respect in the state house knowing we have more sort of it, it's like coming here made me realize particularly as i you know i had this interesting at least experience where i was here a fair amount with my wife's family here 10 years ago left came back and it's like a time you know things are have shifted so much in terms of just the the where the sport is. It's before then it was very much this sort of like awkward adolescence, maybe even before then. And we're kind of like, no, we're like young adults now. We kind of have to like get our act together and like clean up and figure out. And and it, and it's really important too, because as we think about adding, as we think about growing trail here, like we have enough of a foothold where quest there's a lot more pushback now of like, do you need that trail? Like you guys have a lot of trail. Like, why are you building that? Do you have community support? What's the environmental impact? And realizing that our profile is such that we really have to communicate where we're headed and our goals to partners and, and figure out how we can best support our chapters, figure out like, what are the best ways to get there? So there was a lot that this wasn't, there was no crisis that promoted this, but it was like, and part of it was, you know, I came in in 2021 and took a year. Like, I just need to learn. You mentioned I was, I was new or at least coming back, like learn the organization, learn the state, like did not put anything on my plate in terms of trying to rock the boat in that first year, um, just trying to learn. And, and that was really important because I'd done a lot of work kind of like this in my professional career, just advising nonprofits and mission-driven organizations like this. The, the process was pretty familiar. And a lot of that was like, you have to know, like, 
it takes enormous amount of trust. You have to really develop the fact base. Like if you, tr- if I was Ned, no interest in coming in and just asserting like, hey, I've got some ideas about how we can do this better. Like that, that was not how this went. And the, I think, and, and I think what we did well is like we focused on the process side of it so much on gathering input from members, from chapters, from partners. This was not a top-down plan. This was a very messy, like not even kitchen table, but just like gather the input from everybody in terms of what they perceive as opportunities, challenges, resources, and try to build it up from that. So I think that makes it hard because in some ways it can be a lot easier to just like top down, decide what what we want to do. But I think that, and then, you know, the, the other in terms of preconceived notions, I think we did this in a way that was, it took a lot of time. So this started, I mentioned in January of last year. So it's taken a year, over a year to put together. And where we started was with the mission statement and the vision statement of the organization. Like we got our board together and spent a day like, do we need to adjust these? And if so, how? And really like, you know, those are they're a couple sentences. You can think like, that seems ridiculous that you guys spent six hours on a couple of sentences, but but they provide the North Star for the organization and kind of like, this is what we are tracking towards doing that in a way and, and getting feedback, again, just setting even that with our chapters and folks and, and letting that sink in and then revisiting. And the plan is really about how do we achieve those knowing we'd set those in place. But like, I think because we took it took it slow was really the kind of what what made it feel like it worked relatively smoothly, even it took a long time. Well, and so with that, is there a particular outcome that you're excited about? It sounds like you're super excited about the connectivity of things and like, you know, the red red, you know, model, which I'm assuming is, is I mean, that's always going to be a thing you're going to push for. But like, mm-hmm. you know, based on what came out of this, like what's something that really lights you up? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think I'm very excited that we came out with a pretty stellar acronym for our plan, the TACO, because we have <laughs> it's I sort of what that. fits in the TACO. Yeah, it was it was not planned. And yeah, awesome. I wasn't even the one that I like made a joke. And then um, our operations director was like, oh, we're going to be using that. Like, it, let's we're going to run with that. But I think the part of it, A, we like rooted it pretty cleanly in the challenges. And, and you can call these opportunities or challenges like environmental protection, like Trails have a huge opportunity to help preserve or conserve and protect land. They also have an environmental impact. So there's two sides to that. The progression, like I think part of what the state, there's areas where we do have really progressive networks that bring people in. You mentioned like that's where you learn to ride, but you need those step ups and you need intermediate trails. You need advanced trails or else kids, whoever are going to go in the woods and build stuff that either is rogue or unsafe or things like that. So like progression is a huge need. Connectivity, as much as like in Vermont, we've got a lot of these local networks and the, the sort of ride to ride, but we're missing a lot of these like backcountry experiences or ways you can connect. And we have things in the hopper that'll really address that, but the need for more connectivity and to take a lot of the existing sort of networks and, and link them together. And then if for, I think across the country, I mean, I talk a lot with the other sort of advocacy group leaders and things like that, but diversity, equity, inclusion is a huge challenge and, but opportunity, like we can do so much as an organization and Vermont's, wild because it's a state that predominantly white and you know that makes our challenge as how do we think about making our sport more inclusive like we've embraced the idea that it's we have to invite people in we can't you know there are other areas of the country where the populations that have been historically excluded are already in your backyard and it's it's how you get them out just on the trail but we're really i think trying to like lean in on that idea of how do we make it more welcoming encourage people to move here to visit here that have been historically excluded from the sport so there's like I think part of it was like the idea that we were very open eyed and tried to focus on those challenges. And then thinking about like from a solution standpoint or how do we get there, 
we really looked at what we could do as an organization, what what resources and abilities do our, does our office have, our chapters have, our partners have, like try to be really honest about that. And then from the goal standpoint, like the what's in the taco trails, you know, that's the T it, it's about accessible, accessible trails, well planned and planning is a huge thing. And I, I think you and Ryan, who's a friend of mine, like probably went deep on this, but like you get what you plan for and you find that out over time. So like planning is huge. The progression, I mentioned that already and, and just environmental sustainability. So like trails anchor this plan, but then there's so much more that comes that needs to happen too. We have some big advocacy goals. There's a lot in Vermont. We really need a more effective oversight model for how trails are regulated, so to speak, because um, they're under the existing land use act, which makes it challenging. We need better incentives for private landowners. Like that's a huge thing in terms of creating stickiness with private landowners so that you can get much more secure access and encourage more people to to uh, in, to allow trails on their land. And then community, like three of the goals that that we have are really anchored in community. We, we acknowledge a need to have sort of better education and etiquette, ensuring folks know when, where, and how to ride. Like that's it's something we need to accept as our responsibility. We want to grow the existing ridership in really smart ways. Like Vermont, there are a lot of people that come here to ride. And so we we one of the things we did even in the plan, we thought about who are our constituents? Like as an organization, who is it that we serve? And we really serve the membership. Like we are a member organization. But that also meant like there was this idea of sort of like not just the current membership, but that like future membership and realizing in the future, we need to be a more diverse organization. So while our job is to serve our members, it's to also like recruit really and critically those members who have not been invited in the past. So part of our goal, I mean, as I touched on sort of on the DEI front is to really in important ways work with partners to bring in folks that have been historically underrepresented. And and like the last bucket, I'd say that I'm kind of I think is really important and it's important for organizations across the board. And again, I mentioned, I talk with other state level mountain bike advocacy um, leaders and this idea of like, how do we have a sustainable and healthy organization? That's the O and taco is like, we can't do this if we're not, if we don't really sort of professionalize or figure out like how we can ensure long-term financial sustainability, sort of like staff continuity. Like we're, it's so interesting when you have a, um, a sector that evolved out of pure volunteerism and, and, we will never want to lose that. The volunteerism is key. That that's engagement from communities. But when the when your requirements step up so much in terms of maintenance and building and like the upkeep and everything else, we need more professionalization in terms of staff and people to like enter this as a profession and feel like it can be a like sustainable thing that they can do. It's not just purely trying to do out of their spare time. So I think, yeah, I don't think there's like one, you know, this is the one thing I would do above everything else. It's like, I think the thing that I am excited about the plan is the fact that there's a roadmap in there. And we really try to articulate kind of the wayposts and how we're going to get there. Because I sometimes I read, and I did a lot of this in my old work, but like you read a strategic plan and it's a wish list. And that's cool. Like wish lists are great, but unless there's some like actual articulation of how you're going to get there, it's really hard. So we we put a lot of energy into like the how which and honestly, like that's the next layer. Like this was step one, and step two is is really like even digging deeper on the sort of tactical how we achieve these goals. But that that I think is exciting. It wasn't just like here's things we'd like to happen in the next five years. It was like no, here's things and how we intend to get there in terms of the things we need to achieve in in the interim. One of the things I found unique about your plan is for every one of the the goals that you have or topics, however you're listed in there, at the bottom of the page you had partners like a logo for each partner. And I think that was pretty, pretty wise to like show the partnerships and 
okay, this organization or this, you know, this part of maybe, maybe it's U.S. Forest Service. Like this is something that they're a partner with mm-hmm. on this particular topic. Yeah. Is that something you pulled that you pulled from, you know, maybe your prior work or how did you, like, how did that get woven into this? Cause that was pretty, I mean, it was obviously intentional, but really wise. Yeah, no, it's, it's a good question. I mean, I think so much of what I had done prior to even this role was like about stakeholder engagement and working with large, complex, sometimes messy groups to achieve some collective goal or outcome. Like a lot of that was the work we did through my, through my time sort of with that nonprofit consulting in particular and realizing like, you can do so much more when you have a coalition of partners. It's sometimes a pain and it sometimes it's messy, but like, I think in Vermont in particular, there's so many diverse organizations and even realizing like I spend a lot of my time, particularly now that we're in the legislative session, working with this Vermont Trails and Greenways Council, who it's not just mountain bikers, it's the snowmobilers, it's the ATVers, it's the equestrians, it's everybody that in and Vermont is a huge smorgasbord of, of outdoor and trail related organizations. But just like it's it's so woven into like you achieve things here by working with others like it's it's kind of part of the ethos um in vermont so i think part of it was like table stakes and part of the really neat thing too is like we put our partners perceived partners for different particular goals and then when we shared it back out draft forms of this you know you brought the forest service they're like no no we want to be a partner with you on on the diversity front like we view that as important for our our federal lands like we need to bring so Partners were saying like, no, I want to be, I want, it was really neat. Like open the door for them to say like, I want to be involved with you in that goal, which was really neat. And I think just our, our prior experience, knowing that, you know, what we do here, so a lot of things. So with the private land element, like we have a thousand partnerships, right? Because like every, every single private landowner we work with is a partnership um, because that's a conversation that has to be kept active. You have to figure out how things are working to them, what they want, what, you know, concerns, that type of thing. and so. Like we wouldn't get anywhere, whether it's with 400,000 acres of U.S. Forest Service land or four acres of private land. Like it's just so embedded in, in how we work. And so, yeah, I think I almost take for granted, like to me, it would be an incomplete plan in some ways if you didn't think about who is going to help you achieve that goal. Let's stay on the uh, access topic, because that's a topic that is obvious. I mean, it's, it's a topic I've paid attention. It's what actually got me paying attention to Vermont in the first place you know, years ago. And that was primarily on the kingdom trails model, you know, and how they, you know, pulled their hundred plus property owners together to get access. But, you know, you, I think, and I don't know what it's called, but you guys, I think are working on some legislation that would help incentivize Mm -hmm. recreational use. And I know this is something we have in Wisconsin. It doesn't, it's not specific to trails. It's more specific to forestry and stream access. Like in Wisconsin, there, the DNR secures access for trout fishing. You know, yep. so you can access through a, through a farmer's field to get to a certain or a trout stream for fly fishing. Right. And I've thought for years, it's like, this, this'd be awesome if we could do this with trails because there's so much land that really can't be used for anything besides maybe a timber stand. It's too steep to farm or build on, but it's a perfect place for a trail and no one's using it, but it's yep. private. So you can't get access to it. So let's go, let's go down that road of your access, yeah. the unique, the unique part of your access and kind of where, where it's going. Totally. There's two sides to this coin, I think, too. So the one that you're kind of hitting on, and it's these are the two of the goals in our strategic plan relate to both it relates to these two things. But one is it, there's a program in Vermont called the Use Value Appraisal Program, also often referred to as, as current use. And essentially what it does is it encourages landowners not to develop their land. So and it's based on lowering the tax burden um, of that land. So if, rather than subdivide or otherwise develop a parcel of land, 
the current program, if that owner is going to either actively manage it, so log it or you know essentially make it a productive forest from a forest product standpoint, or if they conserve it, or if they farm it, if they do any of those three things, the tax base, their immediately tax bill goes down dramatically. And the, I don't have the numbers in front of me, there's an enormous number of acres in Vermont that are in this program because yeah, people have big tracts of land. They either have to decide, I want to actively manage it for forestry. I'll, farmers obviously are subject to this and people can conserve it too. So it's a program that's been around for a lot of time, a long time. And it's actually one of the reasons that one of the legislative sort of things that are, it's a national thing at the moment, a lot of state legislatures are figuring out how to achieve it is the 30 by 30 program. Like how do we conserve 30% of the nation's land by 2030? And Vermont is, depending on how you do the math, like Vermont is almost there already because of programs like current use that have encouraged landowners not to develop that land. So the program is already there. Um, recently, like the last session, there was actually legislation that allowed, amended the program to include what they call reserve forest land. So forest land, you kind of mentioned it, like it can't be productive. It's steep hillsides, it's old growth forest. It's how do we simply like reward or keep these forests protected for the value that they provide, even if they can't be productive, so to speak, in terms of forestry or agriculture, or what have you. And so that opened the door to revising the program. And it's one that as part of our long-term goals, and we're working with other partners who similarly want to see some tweaks is 100% recreation should be in there. Landowners should be, hey, if you're going, uh, this idea of creating public access trails is another tool to, that enhances the value of land and, and rather than develop it. If your options are developing shopping area or whatever, a warehouse or public access trails, that landowner should not be taxed at the same value of that land. They, they're using it for another public purpose. So we have the conversations that we are underway. The reality is a program like this that involves, you know, revenue is one that is never easy because it means the money ha- at the end of the day that you know, people love ideas like this. And the end of the day, though, the money does have to come from somewhere, too, in terms of it's going to lower tax revenues if you increase the increase the number of landowners that can get a tax break on these things. So we realize it's a it's a couple year effort. It's going to be a few years. It's not something that we can just switch on, but the conversation has started, which is really good. And I think, you know, most people immediately acknowledge the idea that this is something we need in some way, shape or form, because currently, and and it's a huge challenge for us and that a landowner right now has absolutely no direct incentive to provide public access on their land. It's relationships that are developed with our chapters. It's out of, they realize it's good for their community. They say, okay, I'll let you build on my land. Um, they can enjoy the trails, which you could say as a direct benefit, but certainly no financial incentive or benefit. And so what happens sometimes is, you know, land changes hands, trails are on a parcel, and a new landowner just can immediately say, no, I'm I'm done. I'm good. You can't have these trails here anymore. Or you can have one or two minor incidents. You can have things pop up where a trail user was impolite and a landowner, again, what's holding them, what's holding them into the the agreement? We've we have created long-term landowner access agreements, documents that we use to help secure public funding and help give us peace of mind that that landowner has at least signed a document that says, I'm willing to have public access for a certain amount of time. But at the end of the day, it, you know, if we had something where, sure, you should still be able to, to pull your land out if, if that's your prerogative. But if then your land is then brought back up to whatever tax value, at least there's an incentive keeping people in, in, in the game. So I think people realize that, and I, and I know talking with legislators that there's support for it. So that's that's one huge piece of this. The other big big piece that we tackle is that just whether or not sort of when permits are triggered and and when when trails are really sort of how they're considered development, and if they're they're actually negative incentives for landowners allowing public access. We do sort of public trails in Vermont are considered municipal projects and have a pretty 
decent amount of leeway before they trigger this is getting into kind of into the weeds but an act 250 permit which is act 250 is the large land use development law in vermont and it's a great thing it's the reason that vermont looks like it is it's kept if you drive down i-89 in vermont it is amazing you look and you're like it's green hills it's you don't have billboards you don't have it's by and large you see how much the landscape has been really preserved and protected and a large part of that is thanks to act 250 so it's not a bad thing but how trails have kind of fallen under with underneath it is is a complicated and messy thing and so that's the other piece is we need to make sure that we have trails regulated in a fashion that doesn't punish landowners because they're already not receiving any real benefit for for allowing their lands to be used. So it's a it's a complicated landscape, but a huge part of it is going to be finding a way to to just it, reward is maybe the wrong word, but at least acknowledge that those landowners are are providing their lands for a public purpose. Yeah, let's go into planning. This sure. is an area that you talked about, <laughs> and and you you made the comment, and Mariah made the comment a lot, you get what you plan for. You made the comment, you get what you plan for. And I had honestly never heard that before Tuesday, which is when Mariah <laughs> and I recorded. And it was so, I'm always hitting on planning in this podcast because there's just so many things that come out of it that are so positive. It adds a layer, I guess, of, you could say maybe red tape or whatever, where most people just want to take their tool in the woods and dig. But you can circle back to the, you get what you plan for, you know? And let's talk about how the Vermont Mountain Bike Association is, you know, kind of tackling that. Mm-hmm. and how it's going to you know, impact the future in a positive way. Yeah, totally. I mean, I think that idea even of uh, it being red tape, it absolutely slows you down on the front end, but I 100% believe it accelerates you on the back end. Because if you've, if you've invested the time up front to work with community input, getting and knowing who your ridership is, what people want, what the community needs, like the, if you really have done the listening and have for folks feel engaged, and then also like the environmental and the planning and design side is essential, like having a really good accounting of the landscape to ensure you understand where there's sensitive natural communities, you understand where trails sort of make a ton of sense and where they don't. If you invest that time up front, and it's hard because you, it's time and money that goes into nothing, no tangible physical sort of result immediately. And that that's hard. And, and the reality is like oftentimes even funding isn't available. People like to have that new thing that they can christen or what have you coming out of it. So we are pursuing and, and it's definitely like I'm a passion sort of say passion project because it's my job. But like part of one of the things I'd like to see happen in the next in the immediate future is a block grant program to where we can support our chapters with both a process. So in terms of something that they can replicate, certainly adapt for their communities, but a replicable process to do that community engagement piece and the planning piece with designers and bring in funding as well to say, cool, we've, we've secured a pot of money. There are people that believe in this. The funds are there, the skills are there, the process is there. So it's kind of streamlined to where it's not wandering in the woods to what you should do, but it's it's pretty straightforward and you can craft that like, what is it that we need? And the the huge piece to it, and this is where we, I think I've really embraced it is that, and, and it's come to, it's definitely become more apparent, you know, as we have more and more trails that trails have impacts. Many of those impacts are positive in terms of we touched on a bunch of them, but you can't bring people into the woods without having an impact. And so we need to live up to that acknowledgement and realize that trails need to have value and purpose. So when you plan and you and really carefully and thoughtfully, it's not about the next, you know, mile of single track or the the 18 inches in front of you. It's sort of like, what is this going to value? Is it going to bring from an experiential standpoint? It goes back to like even the conversation we were talking earlier about about in Seattle out with Evergreen, like to me, it felt so purpose-driven in terms of 
we're creating this trail because it creates a linkage that's going to create this new experience. And, it, and it's how we want to bring in these users or these users have expressed need, like everything seemed rooted in a rationale and a purpose. And so I, we've seen it here too. I mean, increasingly, as we come with proposals, particularly on public land, like the, I think the sentiment in the past has been, here's a proposal we should be able to, like, why shouldn't we be able to build this? The assumption that provided a trail doesn't, you know, is minimized in terms of environmental impact, we should therefore be able to build it. And as we've increased the density of trails that we have, the pushback has been like, well, do you need that trail? Like, and need is not the right word because you could say, is any of this really necessary? And I, but the, but it's like, if we can attest and show the value and be like, no, no, we had, we worked with the community. We did like the planning process. We figured out what, where we want to be in five years. And that's another thing that I think is instrumental and critical to the planning is if you put yourself in the shoes of a lot of these communities and other stakeholders and look backwards 10 years to where mountain biking was 10 years ago and where you, where it is now in hundreds of additional miles and these networks growing up, they want some line of sight and where are you guys heading in the next five years? Like I, I just, we want to get a sense of what is it that you, what is it that you want to achieve? So I think it, it, it does its additional work up front. And the other thing that's valuable is like, if you're defining how that work takes place, it's not being put into some like bureaucratic box of planning. It's, it's authentically working with those, with your community, with your ridership, with the other stakeholders, with landowners, but also folks that have environmental concerns. And I think, you know, if we think it allows us to put trails in a, in a much more sort of a tool that everyone benefits from kind of bucket to where if we're going out and re- working with local conservation commissions to think through how can trails both help us secure more land under conservation, mindful that, yeah, we're absolutely being upfront, like there are areas that we're going to focus on preservation and not have trails, but that's part of the effort. Like it goes back to the partnership thing. Like you can't do any of that if you're just winging it or just building and I still think like the act of building is without question, like that's the most rewarding and fulfilling part of it. But knowing, you know, I think the least fulfilling part sometimes is you go and you visit a new trail and you're kind of just like, why, why, you know what I mean? Like you, you ride and it's, it's, I, it's not, not, not happened in Vermont, but I, you know, I've been all over the place and I could tell like, you're kind of just bummed out. You're like, didn't really feel like that was nece- not even necessary, but like what, what real value added that brings. So I think it to me and just depending on where and different mountain bike organizations are in very different places there are places in the you know if you don't have trails at all planning is still super critical but but as you get more density and more of a foothold we you won't be able to go any further without that planning because you you'll people will need to see and you'll need to just be more clear about where you're headed so i, I think it's almost it's a it's it's not a nice to have it's a it's a requirement depending um as we just grow as a as a sport you talked about that it costs money and it does, but when you look at the scope of a project, the bottom line, like it's maybe a 10th of it, Yeah, you know, cause really the real cost goes into the labor and materials and, and equipment and everything at the end of it to get it built, but all the work up front or rebuild. That's yeah, the other, I mean, and, yeah, that's the other big piece too, is like, if you think about the money, it saves you in the long term, and that goes to, it's the you know, same is true with really quality, well-built trails. Like, you know, you, you get what you plan for and you get you pay for too in terms of that idea of like a trail that lasts the test of time and is part of a bigger picture isn't like oh you know it's almost like there's what trails cost and then there's the cost sort of benefit of those trails like yeah it it in terms of it actually created this experience we were after or it solved this 
puzzle or it, you know, enabled a new loop or connection, like it's be looking past the cost to also thinking about going back to the idea of like, we really have to view the model that we've kind of been talking about here is almost thinking about like a ledger where you have pros and cons and the cons like can depend on how environmentally sensitive an area is like how, you know, much social impact you're going to have parking implications. There are definitely like those downsides. And so when you, what you put on the positive of the ledger needs to outweigh, I mean, granted, we don't have like, it's can't do this apples to apples, but you at least can look at those two columns and say like, man, the stuff that the positives that this project are going to bring clearly outweigh the um, the negative impacts. And so just trying to be more thoughtful, I think from that kind of a kind of a standpoint. Well, and then securing funding, you know, like, I don't know of any grants that allow you, I mean, there, I don't know of any grants that you can get without some kind of plan. Like you can't go to a bank and get money and say, I want to build a house <laughs> and like, <laughs> trust me. Yeah. Trust yeah. me. Like this is it, you know? So, and the reason why I'm saying that is because, and I'm hoping this becomes more of a trend is that we do get the only grant that I'm aware of at this point, and I think there are more coming online, but the only grant that I'm really aware of at this point, well, I guess there's a little bit in West Virginia, but the nationwide grant is a trail accelerator grant that IMBA came out with. And I was a recipient, or I shouldn't, my community was a recipient of that grant early in the first round of it. And Mm -hmm. I've said this, I don't know how many times in the show. So people are probably sick of hearing it by now, but what came out of that was so many more positives that you could, we had, we had money come in that nobody knew existed. Yeah. We had trails that now are online that provide that user experience. I mean, I don't know how many people have traveled a ride and ridden a trail, like you just said, and was like, huh, did that really need to be a trail? And I get different trails and we need trail diversity because different people want different things. Right. But I think there are some trails that we could probably all agree on. We're like, maybe that didn't really need to be built in that manner or in that place because it didn't really provide anything. Yeah. Well, you nailed it too, though, in terms of like, in addition to tra- to planning, saving you on the back, like give, accelerating you on the back end. Cause yeah, you put all this time in up front. And a good example, like I mentioned the permitting process here, like even as onerous it is, like if you go through an official state permit, Act 250 permit, it's expensive, it's onerous, it's not a great thing, but because you have to lay everything out, then you get runway for years of like, you know, a great example, Slate Valley Trails down in um, in Poland, Vermont, a new network that's emerged over the last couple of years. They gave themselves 45 miles of runway just to build. And it and it was an enormous effort up front. But that idea of, of so there's that side. But then you mentioned it as well. When you have a plan, the ability to get more funding and more support, like it's catalytic in terms of it being able to whether it's a private funder, whether it's public funding to say, like, no, we've thought about this and this has value, like what it can unlock from a uh, from a support standpoint is huge, too. Yeah. Let's let's kind of shift gears into bike parks. And this is something I've been trying to bring up a lot more. I have a personal interest in it because I think they serve I think they serve the activity of mountain biking in a really good way, um, and in ways that we can't do on public lands. And your region has quite a few bike parks in it. It's it's kind of like, and I've said this forever, but it's kind of like, you know, the New England area or region has got a plethora of alpine ski resorts too and cross country skiing yep. as well. You know, but let's talk about like Bike parks in your region, the role they play to help create that diverse user experience that you maybe can't do on public land because of, you know, maybe not being as sustainable in terms of like needing more maintenance, but also just paying for maintenance up front because that's the biggest, you said it early on, we all started here as a volunteer, but mm-hmm. moving forward, like you and volunteers are great. I'm a volunteer. I'll never, volunteers are awesome, but it's not a sustainable model to be solely in that silo. Yeah. Right. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, 
I love bike parks. I mean, I spent when I lived in Seattle, we'd, we'd make sure we get up to Whistler a couple times in the summer. And that's where you would progress more than anywhere else because you can just <laughs> rinse, you know, wash, repeat and get to experience this sort of like the amusement park aspect. I don't mean that in a bad way, but like the ability to really hit features and it's it does provide experiences that when you're, whether it be public or private land, like the type of things you can build and do in a bike park are not things oftentimes that a landowner or that are oftentimes even consistent with like the landscapes you're working on. So it's, it provides a, a really important and a way that gets folks into the sport. I think, I mean, and I think some people have notions of what a bike park is or does or can do, but you know, I think, and we have four within an hour and a half from my house here in terms of, and Vimba as an organization works closely with, with five, we work with Killington, Stratton, uh, Burke Mountain, Bolton Valley and Sugarbush all work closely with with Vimba to help support their programming. So Bolton Valley around the corner here, they invested, I mean, even built, and they're kind of known historically as like Vermont Freeride. They they had some crazy things up there when I lived here, even rode up here a lot many, many years ago. But they just invested in, I think it's a three and a half mile green downhill trail that I rode this summer a bunch with my nine-year-old son and his friends and stuff. And it was amazing. And for them, it was game changing, like the amount of families they then got up there. And the moms and dads, like they would let their they would get to rip and have laps and have fun. And I think it actually links back to like, one of the things about trail networks that are super compelling to me when you do have diverse diversity of experiences. So you can bring your kids, family can go the mom and dad can split up, they can ride different things. But bike parts, I think are seeing that too, to where they're bringing in things for everybody. And you know, ways that it's not all about you know, super advanced or experienced riders, it's kind of something for everyone. And at the same time, I think the the flip side, I think that is really important and that mountain biking is kind of the core is is that idea of free public access I, I in my mind. Like, and that's what, and you know, that idea of, I think bike parks serve an incredibly valuable purpose in terms of the pay to ride. And as you mentioned, like it creates an economic model that they can do and, and create things that are, you know, you can ride there in the wet because you've got people <laughs> that'll, they'll rebuild it. Like it's, you know, they have much more control and it is more of a commercial activity, but not losing the soul of like that idea of anybody. And, and one of the things that we're trying to tap even more into is the fact that, you know, we have a thousand miles here. You don't have to pay to ride. And if you can connect those to communities, if you can get kids, particularly disadvantaged kids, bikes, like if you can get them the equipment, we have a lot of chapters that are pioneering ways of doing lending library, not just chapters, but communities too, like lending libraries for bikes, like the barrier to access once you have that bike is so low. So I think it's an important, like kind of an important trade-off to just keep in mind. And, and at the same time, I mean, the other thing I'll note, and you mentioned New England, like New England has so many small, some in some cases defunct, in some cases hanging on ski areas, and in some cases bigger ski areas too. But winters are getting shorter, summers are getting longer. And I think cracking that nut and, and getting more people into the sport, it, it's it, they for them it's become just an economic sort of vitality question and and i think a lot of them are figuring it out in terms of as i mentioned like with bringing in families bringing in an experience standpoint knowing that it's not easy still to make money you have to get a pretty significant sort of volume of people out and so in investing in it i think there was a time where it was like oh i guess we'll do this in the summer and it was kind of like a haphazard sort of like why not and now i think we're seeing more and more with the resorts like no no we're viewing this as like a five or a 10 year plan for this to be a, a real revenue driver. So it's interesting. It's definitely a, a, there's so many in this region. And I think there's a lot of, 
it's a hotbed and and they work i think together to, and they learn from each other in terms of how to make this even more um more successful yeah and how about and i don't know how how much of this you have but having the public access to the private access so you can still ride to ride and then ride home i mean that's kind of the sweet spot right yeah no 100% i mean that's the yeah in some ways like that's the dream and we we have there's a lot of that where you know the the lift access areas are embedded in or around areas that have existing single track and like you can kind of choose your own adventure in terms of what you end up riding and doing. And I mean, I think, you know, for example, one of the projects we have in the hopper for, and this is a legacy project many years is, is the Velomont, which is a 485 mile single track corridor that's going to run from Massachusetts to Canada. And, but part of that segment, this is down by Killington, like you will, you would in theory be able to ride from Killington peak down to the pass and then take that all the way down another, how many thousand, another thousand at least feet of descending down to, the town of Rutland. And you're talking about like, I don't know if that's a 30 mile, like negative net downhill, like these kind of neat things you could do to, to link those together and not just segmenting them and like, okay, you're, you go to your resort day and you stay there or drive your car there or whatever. But I think, and, and so many of the mountains, I mean, Burke mountains like that sugar bush is a hundred percent like that. It's, it's absolutely in the network there. Bolton Valley is, is invested a lot in, and it's neat actually, I would say too here. What's really cool is I mentioned those five resorts that support Vimba and we work with closely, like they invest in trails. They invest in the trail infrastructure. They help support us and our chapters because they view that. I mean, part of it is because it's the right thing to do and they they like, you know, like mountain biking, but I think they see the connection. Like the more public access riding they have, the higher quality it is, the more that ultimately will benefit them as well. So it's a it's a pretty symbiotic relationship we have with with them here. Yeah, I, th- I think more so than what people would would at first assume. You know, like somebody's going to say, well, why would I go pay to ride here if I can get this over there? And one of the guests that I had on over a year ago, you know, he kind of hit the nail on the head. It's Nico Mullally with Ride Canuga. Like they're in Pisgah National Forest. Like there's a lot of free trail in Pisgah National Forest between Pisgah and DuPont and everything else around there. Like, why would I open a bike park that you don't have to pay to, to go to? And he's since opened another bike park. You yeah. know, there's hey, two go to and ride and pan ride up to the top. I've yeah. been there. I, it's a fantastic place, but you're, you're still earning your keep at Canuga. Uh, yeah, exactly. You know, and it's, and I've had the question asked here where I live, like, why would I pay to ride somewhere? And I think it's, it's so good. And I think there's a really important thing. It just kind of struck me a minute ago too. Like in a bike park, the experience can be 100% bike focused. Like what you create is that you can, it is entirely about the riding experience. And the reality is when you have trails, certainly on public land, like that is not the 100% priority. You can still build cool features, but it's about the overall experience. It's a respect for nature. It's a respect for like, it's a it's a different vibe. Like you have to, and we, we think about that when we work with our partners kind of in the conservation focused community, there's a conversation around like, well, how how is this trail serving different purposes in terms of accessing nature, in terms of a fun experience? But it's almost like, we joke sometimes, like, how much fun are you allowed to have on the trail? Like, in some way, and that's, like, being facetious. But but in a bike park, it's different because you can really build and orient it 100% around the bike experience, which you just, like, it lit up when you talked about when you talked about Canuga, which is, like, very much built around, like, how do you have the most a curated set of, like, really interesting and awesome downhill trails? It's cool. Whereas you go to Pisgah, it's, like, you know, the trail's fun and rad, but they're they're designed about getting people to points of interest in sustainable ways. And, and it's, it's a slightly different focus than a bike park can have. Yeah. And it's also about respecting the other users that may be on the trail, which mm-hmm. may be birding, maybe hiking, whatever their, whatever their avenue of use is, you know, and, 
And so that's, yeah, I mean, that's, you got, we have to respect that as well in the, in the public spaces. Yep, totally. Let's transition into your world more personally. And I, what I mean by that is I always like to ask people, and it sounds like you've got a wealth of knowledge here, what they, what they look for in communities if they're going to travel. And I think you more than most people, since you went into the van life, we'll call it, since that's the thing to do right now, <laughs> before you landed it back in Vermont. What are some places that really stuck out to you that you got to experience and why they, why they stick out to you when you're traveling, making that trek across the country? Yeah. I mean, there's so many places that I'm excited to get back to and just really love. I mean, from, I mean, we mentioned Moab, but from Idaho, that whole area off the Teton Pass is amazing. Durango, Fruta, Sedona, St. George, like a lot of the Southwest is, is pretty rad just because it's so different. I love, we talked about the Pacific Northwest, like they're incredible places to ride there. Squamish, Squamish is a community I think about a lot, like, and granted that's like kind of a gimme mecca of riding um, for a lot of people. But I think what I really like, and we've talked about, we've touched a lot on the features already on the kind of this conversation, but like there's so many, there's so many amazing networks, big ones within Squamish that are really pedal a bull in a sense, like whether you go up, you know, to House Lakes or Garibaldi or like, you can kind of like, it's not, it's not, it's just connected and feels part of the community. And it feels that thing, that thing too, where like, I think a characteristic for me, and it depends a little bit, there are places that are fun to visit because they're amazing. Like just the scope and scale, what you see, what you do. And, and that's, you can be blown away when you're at a community though, where it feels like people are embedded in the experience too. Like they're living there and getting to play there as well. And it's like this kind of like balance right where it feels like the people that live here are also the people that enjoy the trails and they're they feel more connected there's a difference from places sometimes that feel like purely destination travel where after a couple days you kind of feel like it feels a little bit artificial or feels like it's not i I don't know there's there's almost a vibe you get after a couple days so there are places i mean there are tons of spots that i haven't been able to ride that i'm excited to, to go to but i think part of it is like it depends on the purpose i guess like i think you know, for me living in Vermont, places I like to go, it's certainly diversity experience. We went and spent a couple of weeks. We'd been there before and went back to Sedona this year because it was like, I want to go ride some like dry desert rock. Like I want to do something different because it's going to shake things up. And and that's an amazing place to ride. Um, but if it's but there's there's a vibe too. like after a couple of days in a spot, it's nice to be in a place where it feels more harmonious, I guess, is like where it's just like people are connected into these trails and it, and it's a, it's a spot that like, it could still welcome in. Obviously you're a tourist when you're there. So you have to respect that as well. But that level of harmony, I think is really valuable. Like how much is the community engaged, supportive? And maybe it, maybe it goes back to like the planning question, like at the end of the day, right. That, that was a, like a planning thing, but the way that it feels like that's a sustainable, functional just place has a lot of value too. And, and I don't, and I wouldn't speak ill of any place. Like I, you gave me a ticket to Moab. I'd be back there tomorrow. Like I, I love riding there. It's an amazing experience. People there are fantastic. I've met a lot of really great people. I look at the same time though, and how many people are going there and how much it changed even. I mean, I went back there in high school in the late nineties, early two thousand. I remember this point, a long time ago, 20 years ago now, but even going back more recently, I was blown away in terms of like how much more users of all different types and largely kind of unregulated, which in many ways is good, but also in just like Part of me was like a little like blown away by just how much you go there in high season and it's kind of feels overwhelming. And so I don't think I answered your question in the slightest. I kind of gave a dance around it, but there's there's no one place. I mean, I think I think that idea, though, of like feeling a place where at the end of the day, it just there it like it can settle back and like be quiet, feel like people are live here and play here. And it's um, 
you know, there, there's some peace. Have you been able to hop the border north into Quebec? Because I know a lot of people from, you know, residents of Quebec hop the border down to Vermont. Yeah. And a lot of people and vice versa, like Sentier is a huge Valley Brody North. There's some really amazing networks up there. Um, I think between, so we, last summer, my wife got to go, she got to go with it, with her, her group of friends and they went up and rode for the weekend and I, it didn't fall into my, I was still, I was still prioritizing visiting whatever, all, not all 55, but all of our, you know, networks here, but no, we're, we're going up this summer for a week to spend uh, some time traveling up there and, and riding. Cause I think there's some really cool and neat things that they're doing and models and just the trails are, are, are pretty amazing. And, and I know that there's a lot of cross pollination too, in terms of bringing in some of the learned just lessons and kind of the, even some of the building styles and things like that, that have come down from Quebec. Cause there's some really neat, neat stuff up there. But personally, no, I'm, I'm psyched for the week we're going to spend up there and not too long. It feels like the middle of winter, but we're, we're almost into spring here. But yeah, I, I think that's a super cool place. And we do see a ton. I mean, it's wild where I live around the corner from Perry Hill here in Waterbury. And this summer I felt like every other day I was running into French Canadians and just, it was sort of like, it, it, like, how did you find this place? Like it's a, you know, it's not, it's not a exactly easy to find. It's not as marketed as like destination to come, but it was just, it was really realized how many people do come down from, from North of the border. Yeah. I know when I was talking to, I think it was Lil Eyed, you know, from Kingdom Trails, mm-hmm. she talked about how many, just how many people from Canada come down to even just, you know, Kingdom Trails. Yeah. Which I didn't, it, you know, living in, you know, Wisconsin, it didn't really dawn on me that it was that close and that, that much of a draw. Yeah. It's funny how it feels artificial. Like what's the biggest city to us here? I, you know, oftentimes you think, oh, it's Boston. It's three, three and a half hours away, but it's Montreal. Like Montreal is way closer and it's right over the border. And there's a lot of people that live right there. It's just an artificial line that separates the two of us. So yeah, there's a, there's a lot of people and there's a lot of great riding up there too. Well, Nick, is there anything that we didn't hit on that you want to point out or, and, and not, or, and do you have any words of wisdom (laughs) that you'd like to leave the listener with? Yeah, no, good questions. I mean, I think touched on a lot of stuff. I think, I mean, I'll, I'll say mostly getting the words of wisdom, but I'm just, I'm super proud of the organization that I work with. I mean, I just, in terms of the chapters in particular in the office, like our staff and and board members across the state that are really invested so much energy in terms of what they've been able to make happen over the last couple of years. It's just like that. I think the first two years, I, I just, I think I was floored how amazing the people were across the organization. I expected to like come in and have to learn people and there were going to be some thorns and it was going to be, the, it was like, everybody was both so welcoming to me, but also so just like immediately in it for the same reasons. Not that we didn't have different ideas about how to get there, but it was just like, you so immediately connected with people is like, come on board. Like, let's, let's make this. You could tell, I think after meeting everybody, I understood why the scene here has advanced so much in the last 10 years. Cause there was so much collaborative, that spirit was, was similar. So that was amazing. And then the other things, I mean, I think just to call out too, you know, we run a member survey every year and had close to 800 people fill it out this year. And we had 96% of our people gave their last season, 2022, a four or a five-star rating. And like 60 some percent was five-star. Like it was, I expected to see like, you know, you get a survey, you're going to get the people who are like axe to grind or things were great. But the fact that we had so many, it was sort of like, it made me realize like how lucky, how successful we have been in creating really quality experience. So we have a long way to go, but like that's, to me, it was like that, gratification of seeing like people that the stoke was there was like people are really pretty psyched with what what is exists in their backyard so that was pretty pretty amazing and i guess like words of wisdom i think to just like whoever is listening to this wherever they are like 
finding a way to support the people that steward the trails they ride. Like that, such an acknowledgement of like, this does not happen by itself. It takes real time, energy and money, even if it's a volunteer organization, like it's an enormous effort. And so going out of your way a little bit to figure out like, how do I support them? And the great thing about mountain biking is like, it doesn't have to be monetarily. It doesn't never necessarily even have to be the membership, although we encourage everybody to be a member of what's whatever extent they can, but like give your time, give your, in, in, you know, it, you have to give back. I mean, it's great that we have a, at least from a youth standpoint, largely free sport, but that requires like, we have to step up and step in. So like, I think that's just the biggest piece that, that, and that's, again, I think if you ask why Vermont has grown so much in the past couple of years, it's because collectively there has been so much of that, that involvement. Well, I think, you know, early on, like it, the fact that they were able to, or you were able to land in Vermont out of Washington and pull your experiences from Washington and pull your experiences from traveling across the country. Like that's just having those experiences and seeing what, being able to see what you've liked and see what works and what doesn't, especially coming out of Washington, like that's huge. It's awesome that they were able to hire you and that you were looking to go that way and that they did a nationwide search is, you know, a lot of times I think you see executive directors get hired just from within, which isn't a bad thing either, mm -hmm. but that's, I mean, that's a pretty incredible story. Yeah, I feel lucky. I mean, I obviously feel super fortunate and I mean, from at least what at least what the people that are in the board that's in charge of me tells me they're, they think it's working too. So I think that like, they feel like they made the right choices and, and I just feel fortunate to be, um, to be where I am too. So it's, it's pretty great. Well, Nick, I appreciate your time today. And absolutely. Can I put a plug in? Can I put a plug in for Vimba as well? Oh, you have to put a plug in for Vimba. Okay. I didn't want to end without no, no, that no. too. I was told by my marketing director, I had to make sure I put some, but I just, you know, I just want to remind, I mean, folks that are anywhere in the Northeast that our membership season starts April 1st. So we run April 1st to March 31st. So it's right around the corner. And by the time folks hear this, they may, our season may have started. So just membership I mentioned before it's, it's our lifeblood. So that, and if they're interested in learning more about Vimber, just kind of following along with what we're up to, they can sign up for our newsletter or follow us on social media at, at Vimba802. And then I think similarly, this might be a little dated by the time, but our, we have our annual meeting on March 23rd. So we do a um, virtual annual meeting and kind of go through the season that was. It's a cool opportunity for us to talk about a bunch of projects and plans that we'll talk about strategic plan a little bit too. So, but that will be available um, as a recording and stuff like that too. So if folks want to dive deeper or have some questions, um, they can, they can do that there. And then lastly, we, we run an annual bike raffle every year. It kicks off April 1st as well. So if we were this year, we're doing a pretty cool Vimba dream build, working with transition, working with a couple other brands like SRAM and Deity and WTB to build a pretty cool dream bike that again, folks can buy raffle tickets and, and help support our organization. So lots of ways you can get either help us out, learn more. Um, and yeah, we just appreciate all the support we have. Well, and this will come out I believe on April 4th. So that'll be perfect for a membership drive. And, and we'll be sure before it comes out, we'll be sure to get the link for your annual meeting. So if somebody does want to view that, that'll be in the show notes and all the other links and stuff that's relative to Vimba will be in the show notes as well. And for those that don't live in Vermont, like I live in Wisconsin and I'm a member of the AMBC, which is a Knoxville organization. And I'm also a member of Copper Harbor Trails Club, which is a upper peninsula of Michigan organization. You don't necessarily need to live in the state mm -hmm. to be a member of that organization. And if you want a sweet transition bike, I've signed up for bike <laughs> raffles through Sierra Buttes at, out in Downeyville. And I live in Wisconsin. Yep, totally. Support mountain biking, even if it's a place you have never been or maybe just dreamed to go to. Absolutely. 
hundred same same deal for me absolutely uh, and almost places i support places like i dream of going even because it's like yeah but maybe maybe my small contribution will help make things that much rather when i when i do get a chance to ride exactly it they'll they'll still be they'll be making things even better so well nick i really appreciate your time today and all the knowledge you share because i think there's a ton of stuff here that you know the listener will be able to take away from this and that's that's incredible so thank you very much i really appreciate it. it was a blast i hope you enjoyed the conversation with nick bennett if you like what you've heard please take the time to share these shows with others sharing these shows will help create awareness of both the guests who have taken the time to be on the show and the podcast series itself please don't forget to leave a rating and review as this is one of the best ways to show your support for the Trail Effect Podcast if you listen to the podcast on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Also, don't forget to check out Cooley Creative at dojustsendit.com. That's www.dojustsendit.com for Cooley Creative. I'd like to thank all of the listeners and guests who have signed up to be supporters of Trail Effect through Patreon. These actions mean a lot to me. With that, the value for value concept is something that has caught my attention. If you find value in the Trail Effect Podcast, you now have a way to provide value for that value via Patreon for Trail Effect. For additional ways to help support the Trail Effect podcast, check out the affiliates link on the Trail Effect website, where you'll find links to Kettle Mountain Apparel, Worldwide Cyclery, and Trail One Components. By using the affiliate links found at www.traileffectpodcast.com, a small commission will come back to the podcast, which helps keep this thing going. This podcast has been edited and produced by Evolution Trail Services. Thank you again for listening. 